We are now live for the Strength and Success podcast, episode 20, which is... Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, no, I know this when one. You put I know it this on one. The spot. I know this one. More is not better. Better is better. More is not better. Better is better. <laughs> I am Trevor Jaffe. This is Riley Presnell. Tired. This is Bob's Big Boy, which, by the way... Socks. Yeah, it wasn't that good. Bob's Big Boy socks. Not good. Nothing was good. So oh, re- we went there for breakfast. Breakfast was terrible at Bob's Big Boy. But I remember, so I had a Bob's Big Boy in my hometown, and I don't remember it being like the one that we went to. Like, the one that we went to was like, you order at the counter, and they bring it to you, and like weird stuff. Like, yeah, I remember my Bob's Big Boy being like a restaurant, like a diner. That's well, why I remember They're franchises, so I guess everyone's a little bit different. Yeah. But, episode 20... More is not better. Better is better. And don't forget, if you're on the live, on the recording live, the podcast actually gets dropped every Monday on like Spotify, iTunes, Google, wherever you like to listen to your podcast, podcast too. Please share it. Please leave a five-star review. We would appreciate that. But if you are on the live on Instagram, you're able to ask questions on there. And we have questions that people have sent us because we put like Q&As up in our stories randomly throughout the week to get different questions and so forth. So I appreciate those of you who take the time to join us live. And I appreciate those of you who download the podcast on Mondays and listen to it. Somewhere down there, if you hear extra rumbling, it's Titus eating pizza. So... <laughs> Lucky him. Uh, so more is not better. Better is better. This is something that comes up because as coaches, we always want, uh, not that we always want, but we have athletes who always want to do more, right? What can I be doing more of? What can I be doing more of? What should I add? That's the big thing is what do I need to add to fix this? What do I need to add? It's like if you keep adding things, eventually you're doing so much, it becomes overwhelming. Yep. And it's not so that you need to do more of something. It's that you need to be doing better of the things that you're not doing. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that's sleep. Sometimes that's your nutrition. Sometimes that's your hydration. I'm not pointing fingers. And <laughs> I'm great at hydrating. I don't know what you mean. Sometimes that's, that's your mobility work or your corrective exercise if you want to use that term. Or, you know, people tend to like, if you put planks in at the end of the program, they tend to skip it. Oh, it's just planks. No big deal. And they're like, well, your bracing sucks. It's like, well, maybe you shouldn't be skipping what you need to do more of. It's not adding more exercise. It's doing the ones you're supposed to be doing anyways. So chances are, if you aren't doing everything that you already have to the fullest effect, more is not going to be better. It's just going to be more fatiguing, more overwhelming, Mm -hmm. and take you away from what you need to be focusing on, which is your priorities. So better is better. More is not better. Yeah. I always talk about intention, right? So everything that you should be doing should be done with intention. Like all of your warm-ups should be done with intention. All of your accessories, everything, uh, your daily homework, mobility, stretching, whatever it is, your PT stuff, it all should be done with intention. So sometimes if you're if you're like, well, this isn't working, um, the effort level that you're putting into whatever you're doing should come up in question first before you decide to add more in. Like if you're just like lackadaisically going through a movement um, and expecting to get a lot out of it, you're not going to. Right, rushing so, your warm-ups or skipping your warm-ups. Yeah, so or just not... Or core work and you have bracing issues, it's like, how do you expect it to get better? Right, so adding more, if anything, can probably take you further away from the root yep. cause of the issue too. So like let's say you're having a shoulder issue and haven't quite nailed down what exactly that it is. And if you're doing three movements really shittily and not doing them very well, of course you're not going to be identifying a need because you're not even doing the movement to its proper uh, level that you're supposed to be doing it. So you're like, okay, well, these aren't working, so I'm going to add in four more things. Right. And then you have literally (laughs) zero idea what it is that you're supposed to be doing to improve this shoulder issue or whatever it is. So more is not always better. It's making sure that the intention of what you're doing is there and i have a lot of lifters that will ask me what is the intention of this movement and i love that because it tells me that they're paying attention 
that and that they want to know like why they're doing it so that way they can feel through that movement oh this is what i'm supposed to do it always tells me that they absolutely hate that movement and they're looking for an excuse not to do that movement but when you've explained the movement and why it's important to them like okay i'll put some focus in this movement um i always i always love this i love hate this expression when people say think outside the box it's Mm -hmm. like have you even filled the box first (laughs) right so if you haven't completely eliminated every possibility within inside the box don't bother thinking outside the box you haven't done your basics yet you know, complete your basics, complete your standards, complete what you have to do, then think outside the box as, as opposed to just like automatically, like, I got a unique, I'm going to do a, a low box squat with bands and chains and a slingshot and ankle weights and uh, the wind blowing from my east. You know, it's like you don't have to think that far outside of the box if you haven't completed the basic box. If your squat form sucks, do pause work, do tempo work, do front squat work, you know, things that are going to fix your pattern or improve your pattern. It's not adding something, it's taking something away so you can get better at the basics first. Yeah, that and like um, when people like, like they combine sessions or they add a whole bunch of extra sets because they're like, well, I didn't love how that last one moved, so I added an extra set. I'm like, that kind of like deviates from the plan because you're adding more fatigue. So depending on where you're at in your training, adding more fatigue is not a good idea. Like, um, if you're on a deload, combining two days together, it's not a good idea because that's adding fatigue when you're supposed to be dissipating fatigue. Yep. So like if you're someone who's on a, you know, if you're on a deload and you're like, well, I'm just going to do my squat and deadlift day together and do everything. It's like, that's kind of like negates the purpose. So like understanding the purpose of why you're doing something is more important than just being like, I'm just going to do so much more and expect everything to get better just because I doubled my workload. Yeah. And then you end up adding a ton of junk volume. And uh, beef time. <laughs> yeah, you're buying me dinner. Why? That's why it's beef time. We like steak. <laughs> but you have to look at this from that aspect. If, if you've added something and you're already doing a tremendous amount of work, what are you going to take away to even that out? Yep. Because like Riley talked about when someone's like, well, I didn't like the way they move, so I did another set. Cool. Did you get rid of an accessory set somewhere else? Did you get rid of uh, you know secondary movement work? Because you've just added. And if you're constantly adding and adding and adding and adding and adding, you are overwhelming your system. Yeah, and there's a reason why... like things are programmed the way that they are. There's the reason why that there's a certain amount of accessories or a reason why you are being quote unquote held back on weight. Uh, like there's a reason to programming. We don't just like open up our uh, spreadsheets and just like, you know, tap on the keyboard and be like, this sounds good this week. So this right. is going to work. Like there's intention thought and there's thought that goes into all there's of these reasons things. For the movements. Yeah. I was looking at it from this way. You get to a certain level, you should be doing less, not more. Yeah. Uh, when you look at like Milanichev at the top of his career, he wasn't doing a significant amount of volume. He wasn't doing accessory work. Um, specifically, he was basically doing the main movements at a heavy weight and then back off volume. Same thing with Yuri Belkin and people are like, well, Yuri Belkin doesn't do accessory work. It's like Yuri Belkin doesn't do accessory work now. He did when he was building along the way yes. in the process. When he got to the highest level, he realized this is all I have to focus on here because if I do too much, when you're a, a you know a 900, 900 pound deadlifter, yep. you're not going to recover from a significant amount of volume. You're going to recover from less and less and less work. So he didn't need to do a lot of accessory work at that point. He just needed to do a lot of focus work. So the stronger you get, the less work you should probably do. The less strong you have, the more work you should probably do as long as it's within the means of your recovery. Yeah, if you're just like... I've had a couple um, lifters in the past who I've given them like an adequate program and they add on like four to five accessories and they wonder why three weeks in they're like, I'm beat to shit. And I'm like, well, you guys, cause you added in an extra five yeah. accessories that I didn't need. Joey just commented, such a point, dealing with a hamstring strain, my coach has limited me to very little, even though at this point it feels fine, doing less is more. And cause yes. we, we know that sometimes strains or injuries happen when you were a point to the past of recovery, mm-hmm. you know? And it's not always the work we're doing in the gym cause that's what everyone thinks of that small mind. It's like, well, I'm not doing that much work. Why am I not recovering? 
It's more than that. Your body does not know the difference between good stress or bad stress. It only knows stress. We cannot harp that enough. You go over that, that general adaptation syndrome. When you, once you get past the alarm stage, if you don't take a step back for recovery, you're going to break down. And that's from fatigue. And if you have a lot of external life stress, like you're fighting with your spouse or you have a rough situation at work or your kids fail in school or your dog's got something wrong with it, whatever it is, that's all stress. Yeah. And that all adds up and your body has a limit of how much stress you can take before it breaks down. Yeah, I think I think lifters want to ignore those outside factors too, you know. Right, like I'm going I, to the gym to block it out. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, like I, I had a I had a client the other day who she was like, Why is this so hard? She's on a right now she's only on a three day training split. Um, because of her work schedule and she was like is this really hard for me because I'm taking so many time so much time off in between sessions that I'm not um, you know getting enough work in and I was like well I guess that thought process could work but also like how is your sleep and how is your food and everything right. going and she's like oh I've been sleeping like shit I'm like that's probably I was like I know you probably don't want to hear this but that's what needs to fix in order for your lifts to get better yep. and she was like yeah that's true I know you're right so you know she's gonna prioritize sleeping and making sure that she's getting like she was only getting like four hours of sleep every single night and like expecting to be hitting you know 80 plus percent and whatever with like ease and she wasn't um so th that's something that like she needs to fix specifically and that's specific to her but everyone wants to ignore the fact that like your sleep your nutrition your hydration it does affect what sleep you're doing especially yeah sleep especially you're, you're gonna not get away with that very long if you have limited sleep uh in fact that's the one what's the one record we've talked about before on the podcast that's the one record that the guinness book of world record refuses to acknowledge or accept is people who want to try sleep deprivation challenges yeah. because it can literally be lethal yeah so that's interesting all right let's get to some of the questions that people have sent us Okay. We have an uh, interesting one from Javier right off the bat, the big bad bat, and uh, right off the bat, the big bad bat. Sorry, didn't intentionally do that. <laughs> it is. It's a mindset question, and it's interesting to come from you know a very strong uh, male perspective to almost acknowledge this, which is hard for a lot of people to acknowledge, and it has to do with fear. Uh, tips on helping an athlete that is limited by his or her mind, scared of the weight, or quote unquote, I can't. I can't is a very powerful phrase. Mm -hmm. uh, I can. And like you, Stacy talks about this. Bamba Burke talks about this all the time. I can. I am. I will. Mm -hmm. You know, you can speak things into existence. And I always look at this as, yeah, the weights can get scary, especially when you've had injuries. Um, this is what you're training for. Mm -hmm. This is the purpose of all those reps. This is the purpose of all those warm-ups. This is the purpose of preparing your meals, getting a good night's sleep, taking vitamins, hydrating. This is what you're training for. This is your opportunity to show your work and to test yourself. It's very, very hard to do that if you are intimidating yourself by saying it's heavy or saying it's can't. Mm -hmm. Instead of that, I'd rather say, I've done enough work to lift this weight. Yeah. Is a very different mindset. And you literally have to tell yourself that. You should not be intimidated by a weight if you've done the work. Mm -hmm. You should be intimidated by a weight if you've slacked and haven't done the work. Because then you know, like, I didn't deserve this. Yes. This is beyond my capabilities because I didn't deserve this. Which is why we say better is better, more isn't better. Doing more work isn't necessarily better. Doing focus work is better. So if you've done the work you're supposed to do, and that could be different for everyone. It's not always the amount of squat reps you have, but if you have bracing issues, mobility issues, a weak upper back, if you're doing the targeted work to get better, you deserve to lift that weight. Mm -hmm. You deserve to move that load because you've done the work. So it's not a question of fear. It's more as it's a question of doubt. Have I done enough to earn this? Yeah. I, I probably hear, I'm no exaggeration, 40 times a week, um, a client will say, this was really heavy. 
That's literally, that's quite literally what you signed up for. <laughs> like, this is power lifting. <laughs> you know, like. It's the, not jumping rope. Everybody's got to jump rope. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> like that's literally what you said that you wanted to do when you started powerlifting. You said, I want to be as strong as I possibly can be. And these same people always tell me, I just want to get stronger. I just want to get stronger. But they're the same people who every week are like, this is heavy. This is heavy. I'm like, yes. And it's going to continue it's getting, continue heavier. getting the heavier. Stronger that, yeah. The stronger that you get, the heavier your percentages get. Like that's just basic progression. Um, and it really comes down to a lot of those, a lot of those clients that tell me that are also the ones that have the least amount of self-belief like they're the ones who are like i i didn't think that i could hit this i didn't think that i could do this i'm like well you just did it because yeah. like trevor said you've been putting in the you've work done to do the it. focus work work with intention you deserve to lift that weight because you've earned it yeah so if you 100 in your heart and in your brain can say i have been doing the work then whatever whatever that number is that's programmed you can hit that work. Yeah. You can hit that weight because it's, you've done the work. But it's supposed you, to be heavy. So that's yeah. what you signed up for is to challenge yourself against heavy loads. And yeah. if you never want it to be heavy, then you should not be in powerlifting. You should probably be in CrossFit or bodybuilding. Yeah. Um, that's not a disrespectful to anyone, but that's what powerlifting is. You're testing yourself against your absolute max limit strength. It's right. literally what you signed up for. <laughs> the only time lifting weight should be easy is deload week. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, you know, you have your weeks where it's like a little bit lighter and everything kind of feels great. And that's when you know that you've probably like leveled up a little bit. Like when someone's hitting like a set of five and they're like, oh, that was pretty easy. I'm like, okay, you're probably a little bit stronger than you were the last time you hit the set of five. You know, right. so like you're constantly leveling up in that way. But a lot of it does come down to that self-belief. Like if I know that I've been slacking on like my accessories or pushing myself, I'm probably going to like not trust myself to hit those heavier weights because I haven't been putting in the work and that's going to scare me more than if I was doing my accessories and pushing myself to ha adequately like I was supposed to and recovering. Um, so I always have to remind those clients that are like, well, this is really heavy. I'm like, one, it was supposed to be. And two, you didn't fail, so you were strong enough yep. to lift all those. So right. if you're hitting these numbers, you're strong enough to hit these numbers. Uh, you're strong enough to not fail. So it's more of like a belief. This is a great question from another one from Joey. Does this also work with openers? Do you suggest having an opener you've lifted in the gym before? That's a no-brainer. Yeah. Dude, if your opener is heavier than you've ever lifted before, you've picked the wrong opener. Your yeah. opener is literally your last warm-up. Mm -hmm. It's just done on the platform. And if you're opening at a PR, that's stupid. Just beyond stupid. You should never be opening at a PR. Chances are for most people, unless they're breaking some type of record, they need a couple attempts at it. And I'm not talking about your state, local, small, sub-faction, like juniors, you whatever weight class you're in, you know, record that no one cares about for your state from the 1800 federations there are. If you're breaking like a significant record, then you might want two cracks at it. I can understand going for it on second. Otherwise, you know, your thirds are for PRs. Mm -hmm. Your firsts are to get you in the meet. Your seconds are to build your total and your thirds are your PRs attempts. Those are the ones you're testing yourself with. If you're opening at something you've never hit before, you've got a horrible game plan going into that meet. Yeah. That's, it doesn't matter what you start with. We actually was supposed to be the podcast next week. Yeah. It doesn't matter what you start with. It's what you finish with. Yeah. And your opener is just to set the tone for the day, get you in the meet, get you comfortable on the platform with the commands, and you go from there. People who open with PRs have no IQ, no intelligence whatsoever when it comes to performance on a powerful meet. You see it. You see people Every who meet. who yeah. will have horrible gym standards and show up at a meet, and then it takes them three attempts to get their opener in because they picked the wrong opener, or they bomb out on their opener because they picked the wrong opener. You see it all the time because people have no IQ when it comes to the actual performance of powerlifting day. Yeah. They just like to train hard. And that's great. Enjoy training hard. But if you're going to compete, be there to compete, which means you're competing at yourself. You want to beat yourself. Set yourself up to have a successful day. Don't open with your ego. That's dumb. 
Yeah, a lot of the times people, like the rule of thumb is usually like you should be able to triple your opener. Um, usually it's like 90 to 92% of like your last heaviest lift. So it should be something that you can do no problem all the time. Yeah. Um, that's usually what I do is like the last heavy lift that someone takes 90% of that as their opener. Mm -hmm. And that generally was their probably their last heavy triple or double that they were successfully able to hit. Yeah. And then you're, we were talking about this a little bit yesterday. It's going to change over time. You're going to collect data on how comfortable of a jump yep. someone's willing to make. Mm -hmm. Some people are only comfortable with, with very small jumps, so you know that, so you have to plan accordingly, you know? And some people take very, very big jumps. You know, on my deadlifts, I tend to pick, you know, much bigger jumps. On my squats, they're more moderate, and on my bench, they're like minuscule. <laughs> because we've learned in the meets that uh, five and a half pounds and 11 and a half pounds are, are two very different jumps for me as far as like my second and third bench. Uh, if I even make it that far, <laughs> the third bench, knock on wood. Um, but you're going to collect that data on how big or small of a jump you're going to get. And that's something you're going to have over time, which is all the more reason to open safe, get in the yeah. meat. Yeah. That's, that's, it doesn't matter how you, like if you, if you bomb out, you're not in the meat at all. So that like Trevor said, it doesn't matter how you start until you finish, which will be, we'll elaborate more on next week. Yeah. Read yeah our for sure. For sure. Next um, question. Okay, we got importance of stretching routines in powerlifting. This is really, really debatable. Mm -hmm. And this country, a lot of the data speaks negatively on, let's specifically long duration static stretching. Like if you were to hold your quad in a static stretch for 60 seconds and then test its power, its power output would be diminished. We know this to be true. The problem is everyone quotes that same study showing that the power is diminished after static stretching, but the protocols they used were long. They were 60 to 180 seconds, mm -hmm. which is one to three minutes in duration. That's something you'd probably do after you lift it if you have a mobility restriction in a certain area because you can gain length passively from static stretching or maintain it. Like Dynamic stretching will improve temporary range of motion. Passive stretching will improve long-term range of motion so you can actually maintain that length because your body re-educates and learns that. Uh, Andy Galpin has a great video on that dispelling the science of passive, active, dynamic, and isolated stretches and so forth. It's like a 60 minute, one of his um, five minute physiologies is actually an hour long. He gets you in with the name five minute physiology, but it's an hour long. So stretching is beneficial. It's about when you do it and what type though. So pre-training dynamic mobility movements are a little bit better because they're not gonna fatigue you as much and you're, you're doing them actively the same way you would load a, a weight and move the weight through a range of motion. So for some people that might be using something that allows them to go beyond range of motion with load. Let's take squat for example, you can probably go much deeper into a front squat or a goblet squat. Doing those light for two or three repetitions before you into the bar is a great way to open your hips for a deeper squat. Yep. Or an overhead squat might open your shoulders for, if you have a shoulder mobility restriction for back squat. But if you took the time to do static calf stretching, static hamstring stretching, static hip flexor stretching, static lat stretching, first that's a lot more time added to your workout. Mm -hmm. Second, if it's a prime mover like your quad, you're going to diminish its power. So we don't want to diminish the prime movers but maybe we want to diminish the antagonists. So we know that knee extension comes from the quads primarily and in a raw squat, that's the prime mover. Maybe you do want to stretch the hamstrings a little bit so they're not so tight so your quads can contract harder because if you fatigue the antagonist, the, pro, the, um, the, uh, the agonist can contract that much harder. So stretching is kind of misunderstood and easily poo-pooed. And if you see a lot of European, Russian, Asian lifters, they do a tremendous amount of stretching because you can also condition to it. If you're doing it in a single dose bout, one minute long, two minutes long, three minutes long, and you're not conditioned to it, yes, it's going to fatigue you. Mm -hmm. Just like anything else, you can condition to that stimulus and adapt to it over time. So it's highly misunderstood. So as far as how important it is, how much of it do you individually need? 
Do you have a restriction that ruins your pattern or inhibits your pattern from expressing your power? Then it's very, very important for you to prioritize that. If you have adequate mobility to squat the depth with a beautiful bar path and can move a lot of weight, it's not very important for you to do that. You don't need to be doing static, dynamic, or any isolated stretching if you're able to get to those positions without any problem. That would be adding more, and it's not necessarily being about adding more like we talked about, it's mm -hmm. being better. Yep. I do also feel like the, the progression of the stretching is important too. So if you do have a restriction and you're always doing only passive stretching and nothing active or nothing loaded, right. at some point it's no longer going to benefit you because we are under load. Um, when we're moving and we are actively stretching when we're squatting benching and deadlifting So doing a bunch of passive type of stretching without any sort of like active movement or loading Kind of at some point isn't going to help you anymore So I mm -hmm. do feel like it's important that if you have some sort of restriction that you are eventually um, Dynamically loading that movement so that way it can get more used to the load underneath the barbell that you're trying to lift Right and the question uh so Washington asked the question in the story originally, and he's, he's on here now, and he says, I ask because I literally never stretch. If I do, it's something I shouldn't be ignoring. Um, sometimes- You have warm-ups. You have warm-ups, yeah, which are usually mobility and stability work. Sometimes when you are very, very constricted or tight, it is a way that you're manifesting stress. Mm -hmm. It's a defense mechanism against stress to constrict up. But other times, it's a complete lack of stability. So the more you're able to brace and hold down, the more your arms and legs and hips can move freely around them because the torso is now stable in the midline, your appendages get better mobility from that. So if you lack the ability to create intravenal pressure and brace, you're gonna find yourself tightening up into the bar because your body's trying to find stiffness mm -hmm. somewhere to support the load. We actually literally just talked about this with um, your body weight squats is, in your body weight squats, you're unable to do them unless you're basically counterbalanced um, when you don't have your arms out outstretched in front of you to do a body weight squat, right. uh, he's not able to do one without losing balance. And that can come from a lot of like the lack of bracing. Midline which, stability, yeah. Which we've seen that in his squat where um, not able to get to comfortable depth because there's no actual torso bracing, like there's no midline rigidity right. there in the movement. Right, if you can get there with your arms outstretched because it's gonna add into your core activation, if you can get deeper and have a stable squat, then it's showing you that the the Antagonist to your back squat is probably bracing and midline stability, not necessarily mobility. Mm -hmm. Because once that stability is created here, there's freely moving hips and shoulders from that point because your body feels rigid and feels yep. stiff where it should. It, it supports safe. the load. Yeah. So Stu McGill always talks about that, that your your um, distal stability is your proximal, I'm sorry, your proximal stability is your distal ability. I had that backwards for a second. So the more you can brace and anchor down, the more freely your arms and legs are gonna move. But it all starts with creating that brace and then opening the hips from there. So if you're not able to demonstrate that very well, it's something I would probably work on. Yeah, bracing. Bracing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, have you ever used peptides for recovery or injury? <laughs> yeah, this was in my story. Um, about five years ago, I did a super total meet, which is a full weightlifting meet and a full powerlifting meet. And on my third deadlift attempt, I tore part of my medial hamstring. And a, a lifter reached out and was like, hey, have you ever heard about BPC-157 and TB-500? And at the time, I haven't. Now they're very common knowledge because the biohacking world loves them, guys like Ben Greenfield. And you can actually get them prescribed now. But uh, I actually had Raw Unity 7, I'm sorry, Raw Unity 9, six weeks after that super total meet. So I was actually able to tear my hamstring and compete six weeks later. It wasn't a very pretty deadlift. It was mostly off of one side. But the rate I healed at was astronomical. So the healing peptides, BPC-157 and TB-500, they work through different systems. BP, BPC-157 is localized. You put it directly into the hamstring or wherever you have the injury, and it's with, it works within like a four-inch radius. The TB-500 um, diminishes your immune response to certain things so your body can heal faster, and that's systemic. 
and uh, they are wonderful. The problem with it now is because they're so commonplace, people are diluting them or knocking them off and you don't necessarily know that you're getting a legitimate product anymore from a research chemical site. So if you're going to use them for injury repair, you want to make sure they're actually getting prescribed from a doctor or you're getting them from like an anti-aging clinic because then you know it's the real thing, which can definitely heal you. Uh, I have a client who injured his pack and got prescribed them from his doctor and was like back to benching full weight in like five weeks. So it just shows you how fast you actually can heal from those with the peptides. They are incredible if it's legitimately you're getting them. Um, the question of safety is the other thing because there is some links to cancer response and carcinogens because as you're lowering your immune response with TB500, those carcinogens are active in your body and you are potentially increasing your risk of cancer cells growing. They're not like growth hormones where you're actually growing the cancer cells too. So uh, I have not, I don't recommend that. I don't say anything about uh, using growth hormones stuff like that, but I, I do recommend that if you're going to use something like a peptide, that you thoroughly research it and understand it and make sure you don't just go to some like bodybuilding forum where everyone's like, hey, they're great. Yeah. Um, because you want to know what the possible side effects things you're gonna be putting something in your body. Um, like I said now, there's so many of them are knocked off or counterfeited or diluted. It's not necessarily worth it unless you're getting it medical grade. So I would be more cautious of that and not just order it for some random company because you don't know what you're getting in that bottle. And a lot of these things come from China and you don't know what's in there either. Yeah. <laughs> so do some due diligence, always look them up. Uh, if you have an injury, I'm sorry to hear that, but they do, if you can get legitimate source of them, they do help you recover probably at two times the speed you would normally, which is pretty incredible. I've never used them, but um, when I lived with Jenna, she had really bad tendonitis in mm -hmm. her elbows. She's a hairdresser, so she lives, you know, like in these positions. Are you doing yeah, I'm yeah. <laughs> she lives in the thriller position. The thriller position. Um, at work all day, and then so she was getting like, and then with like low bar squatting, she was getting just like debilitating elbow pain. Um, and she used the BPC like directly into like around her elbow, and it was actually like quite impressive how well it helped her like get rid of that pain. At least for meat prep, it's only you know with tendonitis it's a temporary and things thing, like it's, yeah. it's they're gonna come back, but to allow her to get through meat prep without like wanting to fucking cry every yeah. single session was yeah, actually really cool. If the reason you've got the problem didn't change, you're going to repeat the problem. So if yeah. you're just using it because you have tendonitis in your shoulders and tendonitis in your elbows that are work-related or training habit-related, that's going to come right back. Yeah. But for you know, a temporary situation, it can certainly help alleviate that discomfort. Yeah. Um, we also have, what do you take daily for everyday health? <laughs> Trevor takes like a treasure chest of, uh, of pills every single day. take a lot day. of supplements. Yeah. yeah. I don't like vegetables. I like fruit, don't get me wrong. I do not like any vegetables except for corn, and then everyone argues that corn is not a vegetable, and the only way I eat tomatoes is if they're in like tomato sauce or like pasta or pizza. So I'm not a vegetable guy, so I add additional fiber. Oh, he ate a zucchini one time. By accident. And I he didn't was, know. And he said, this isn't that bad. It's terrible. He said it wasn't that bad. It was chopped into a little chunk by accident and in he thought some it was, Asian thought food. It was a, no, it was when we were at Manny's and he thought it was a piece of egg. Yes, it was, it was I thought like it was egg because it was a yellow squash. It was a yellow zucchini and I was like, that, that's not right. He bit into it and he was like, I don't think that was an egg. <laughs> that's not right. So yeah, I'm not a big fan of vegetables, but I do know that these nutrients are exceptionally important for health. So I talked about taking a whole food multivitamin. I take an exponential amount of additional minerals, uh, specifically calcium, magnesium, and zinc. In, the, in my morning meals, morning breakfast meal, I take extra calcium magnesium. Calcium is responsible for muscle contraction, so I like to make sure that's available. And then before bed, I take zinc, which is responsible for hormone replacement and so forth, and a lot of enzymatic conversions in the body. So is magnesium. Magnesium also calms you, which is very, very important before bed because I tend to be very active and hyperactive. If you notice, I don't sit still. Um, 
lazy but hyperactive <laughs> efficient not lazy right. efficient That's exactly right. efficient not lazy but uh so i take a lot of minerals and because i live in florida and it's hotter than the devil's testicles i take a lot of additional potassium and sodium mm -hmm. so i sodium and salt a lot of my foods garlic fault Garlic salt is my favorite seasoning on anything. That's because it's not spicy. It's not spicy. I don't like spicy. I don't like vegetables and I don't like spicy. Um, so I take a lot of extra potassium and so forth. I talk about taking curcumin or turmeric. I have been taking that since I was hospitalized a little over 10 years ago from my back. Uh, doing research in there and inflammation because I got to a point where I was masking the pain with a lot of anti-inflammatories and I was pooping blood. Uh, they were shutting down my liver and they were horrible. So as I was looking for liver health, I discovered turmeric or curcumin. It's the same thing. So for the better part of 10 years, I've taken high potency turmeric and curcumin. The litany of things that helps is amazing. Mm -hmm. uh, your immune response, your liver, anti-inflammatory, your skin, so many different things, brain cells. Uh, it's just like a plethora. It's like a wonder herb that's out there. So I take it regardless. Um, I'm not saying it's going to cure any of those, but it's certainly beneficial to have it in your system. So I take that. Uh, I usually focus a lot more on my health. I just added something like Tutka, T-U-T-K-A, T-U, I'm sorry, T-U-D-C-A, all capitals. I've added that in. I usually will cycle out certain things that are just health related. Um, I take a lot of like adaptogenic mushrooms and herbs. So like ashwagandha, cordyceps, stuff like that, because I have a pretty high stress life outside of the gym. I know I'm smiling, happy, go lucky guy, but there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes that people don't need to know about. So I take that to try and help with my system to recover from the stress so I don't break down as much. Um, I will usually also cycle in some antioxidants here and there. Sometimes things like berberine and NAC and stuff like that, I usually will cycle certain things out so my body doesn't adapt to one thing. The one thing I take consistently though is the micronutrients and the turmeric. I've taken it every day for the last 10 years minimum. Uh, that's probably what I take mostly for health-wise. There's a lot of like sports supplements in there too, like creatine, um, casein protein powder, whey protein powder on occasion. Uh, it just depends on where I'm at and what time I'm doing, things like that. So I'll take stuff like that, you know, uh, pre-workouts because I like caffeine. <laughs> caffeine is my blood type. I do a lot of the same similar ones, like a whole food multi. Um, I do a taurine, a potassium, um, mostly for electrolytes and uh, hydration because I'm obviously not very good at it. Uh, the multi-mineral, I take a fish oil. Right now we have like cod liver. We kind of just like cycle back and forth between like an omega-3 or a cod liver, whatever. Um, vitamin D, I take a cranberry for my lady parts. Um, and then I'm trying to think of what else. What else do we normally put in there? In what? In my morning stuff. Oh, you calcium. see the calcium, magnesium. I'll put a taurine in there for hydration because we do train in the yeah, garage. I said taurine. Potassium. Potassium's in there. Mm -hmm. uh, the multivitamin. She has a specific woman's multivitamin. Uh, she likes cranberry. I literally just said that. I'm just going through them all. I'm going to take them all out. Take them all out. Um, uh, I think I'm missing anything. Oh, probiotic. Probiotic is something we both take a high potency yeah. probiotic because your digestive health is everything. So that's probably everything in there. Vitamin D, I think I said. Vitamin D is also in there, yeah. I think All right, it. so these two questions kind of combine. What are your thoughts on CBD creams, ointments, worth the money, and meet the hype? And then there's also Frankie Fresh on the same subject as JC is Tiger Bomb Snake Oil. These are really, really interesting. Um, when you're putting on an ointment or a cream, if it's not transdermal, it's not doing anything. Mm -hmm. Some of them are used to mask or blunt the pain that you feel by either being a heat cream or a cold cream or an analgesic, which just masks the pain. This is a double-edged sword. For some of us, if we're in deep in the meat prep and we're just trying to get through it and make sure we get there, using that to kind of blur that pain sensation is pretty commonplace. If you're not deep in meat prep and there's no deadline or time that you have to worry about, using them is a huge mistake. Because your body is sending all these signals that it's uncomfortable, it's in pain, it's inflamed, and you're ignoring them 
all year long, it's only going to get worse. You're ignoring a problem and it means you're training past your body's barriers, your body's limits. So you mean everyone that uses horse liniment every single day of their, uh, of their, uh, training sessions should probably not be using it. Absolutely. And I'll give you a little <laughs> backstory because I made the same mistake. Uh, when I was out of the hospital, I mentioned earlier in the podcast 10 years ago, I would put heat cream. I would put horse liniment on. It smells like shit. Mm-hmm. Um, and it gets really, really hot and it blunts the pain. And I was getting through all these workouts and my back was still in tremendous pain. And one day I forgot to bring it and I didn't use it. And when I was training, I couldn't go as heavy and as far because I wasn't blunting the pain reception, the pain process. And I was like kind of mad, disappointed as I was driving away from that strongman training session. I used to drive up to Fort Lauderdale train strongman for four hours every single Saturday. I was like, my back doesn't hurt. I'm not in pain. And it was kind of surprising to me. And I'm like, hmm, maybe I shouldn't wear it next week either. So I didn't put it on and I was able to lift a little bit more than I was the week prior, but I wasn't able to lift as much as I had been. And I was progressing at the rate my body wanted to actually progress at instead of blunting that inflammatory response, that pain response and not actually listening to my body. And my back kept getting better and better and better. So I haven't put on a horse cream, a liniment, um, stuff like that in God knows how long. We're going on probably eight and a half, nine years now, and I've gotten to a point where I'm stronger than I was then and healthier now. Now, uh, CBD creams, I don't think help for shit with pain. Um, they are better with anxiety. Some of the science and research is coming out that CBD is a lot better for anxiety, but usually it's better ingested because it's not something that's gonna carry through the dermis um, of your skin. So you're not going to absorb it very well from skin unless you have a transdermal carrier, which can be dangerous. Um, a lot of pain creams use a transdermal carrier like, like uh, uh, patches and stuff like that for like anti-smoking. They have something in there that helps carry it through the skin. Uh, an industrial solvent sometimes, which can be dangerous because whatever's on your skin or bacteria can also go through that. So that's why the patches have a cover on the outside so that stuff can't get in there. Um, so I don't think CBD creams is worth anything. Uh, unless you just like to tell people you use CBD creams and you have a discount code and you want to, you know, jack up your followers and make them buy shit. So CBD cream is about worthless. CBD itself, there's some possibilities that it helps as an anti-anxiolytic. So if you have sleep issues or stress issues and you don't want to be completely subdued by actual THC, CBD might help you within that moment. Yeah, I agree. I think CBD is better used for, um, anxiety. I know that they say there's a lot of like anti-inflammatory properties to them. Um, but generally the ones that have the anti-inflammatory properties to them are the ones that are adding in turmeric, fish oils, things like that, right. that are actual anti-inflammatories. Like you'll see a blend of like CBD plus. Yeah. Turmeric. It's not the CBD. It's the turmeric and the fish oil. Yeah. So <laughs> I don't know that it's necessarily an anti-inflammatory, but I don't use any of those things. I don't think I've ever used like a tiger bomb or an icy hot or anything like that. Um, <laughs> Matt, not no, no, it's not for daily use, Matt. He's saying so, uh, oh, question moved up. So surpass. Diclofenic sodium isn't for daily use. <laughs> no, no. Uh, shout out to Matt, uh, non-planary. He just hit an all-time like deadlift PR after having like a wicked arm surgery. He's actually uh, I mentioned it before on the podcast because he competes raw, single ply, and multiply. Hence the non-planary uh, tagline there. Um, actually, Trevor likes to tell people a lot about like whenever we go to seminars. It's the greatest. It's the greatest name. He, he brings it up a lot. He'll talk about how you do all of them, and then he'll be like, he has the best Instagram name ever. It's so cool. Uh, so many people have these like pseudo clever names that are just annoying. His actually makes a lot of sense to me. So I just like it. Um, but he's also one of those geared guys, also like Anthony Oliveira, who will reach out to raw guys to learn more about lifting in general and understand movement. The same way I would reach out to a multiply guy to understand their movement, so I can you know because different chains. 
anterior chain versus posterior chain and Matt's someone who goes between the lines there and uh, was willing to let me work with some of his movement and his sumo was gone up. He had an all-time PR, I think 605. Yeah. And Matt's in his, oh cool, I'm going to say this, I think he's 50. <laughs> so like 605 at 50 is pretty freaking good. That's a good, not 50, he's almost at 50. 50. <laughs> he's almost at 50. And he's a, a 181 guy. So that's a really strong pull. Not, I believe that might have been raw. I think it was actually raw. It's an all-time raw PR. Uh, is there another? Why do feds have you pay for a membership on top of paying for the venue? Okay, uh, Frankie Fresh. You're not paying for the venue, the meet director pays for the venue. You're paying for the opportunity to compete with judges, with competition equipment, with standards, so your lifts actually count. Yep. If you show up at some random gym meet where it's unsanctioned, none of those lifts count. But the meet director has to pay for people to run the computers. They have to pay for judges. They have to pay for spotters and loaders. They have to pay for the venue. So people get upset like, oh, this costs so much. Well, why should they do it for free? Those <laughs> spotters and loaders work harder than anybody in the meet. And they save your freaking life. Mm -hmm. uh, the venues have a shit ton to clean up after you're in them. We are not nice to a venue. You know, we, we jam the up the bathrooms, toilets. Oh my God. <laughs> bathrooms at powerlifting meets are the most, like that alone, we should all be charged like an extra like 50 to 100 bucks for how mm -hmm. disgusting bathrooms are left. So the fact that you only have to pay like 100 to 125 for a membership with the way that some of these venues have looked after we've all left is like, yeah. that's a deal. <laughs> yeah. So a federation membership makes sense because that federation needs to make money for controlling all this and having the rules and making sure the judges have standards and making sure meet directors have a certain amount of equipment. Like... Mm -hmm. Um, WRPF, USPA, both require the feder the state, um, not state, I'm sorry, the meet director to have a certain amount of equipment. Like if it's a monolith meet, you're required to have a monolith in the warm up room so you can warm up on the monolith if you're in wraps. If it's uh, USPA, I think they require you to have at least two racks, at least two, two benches, yeah. at least mm -hmm. two uh, deadlift bars in the warm up room, stuff like that. Uh, some of them more, depending on the size of your meet. So the standards that are upheld and the standards that you lift to is what you're paying for. Yes. 100%. And a lot of the times you get, you're getting brand new equipment. Like some of yep. these meets, you get brand new benches that have never been benched on before. You get brand new bars, which kind of sucks for deadlifts. <laughs> it's the nerve. I like it. <laughs> I think it's okay. I like Whatever. Um, but if I'm yeah. not bleeding, I'm not trying. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's more than like, I, I think that you're not thinking about how expensive it is. Like you usually have to pay a judge 150 bucks a day, mm -hmm. somewhere around there to judge. And that's one. And you're supposed to have four to five. So that way right. they can rotate in or out. So you're paying each judge hundred bucks, um, paying for the equipment to be transported. If it's not at your gym, you're paying to rent out the venue, um, paying for metals, um, paying for all of these things, the computers, if you don't have them, people to run the computers or yep. systems or whatever. Sometimes so, they have to rent or borrow equipment from other meat directors to make sure they have adequate amounts. Sometimes I've seen people rent kilo plates. I've seen people rent extra monoliths to make sure they have them. So your membership fee is more of a maintenance fee basically right so that way that federation can continue to provide you with nice things right. basically um because none of that stuff is cheap like your membership your membership basically pays for one judge to show up to your meet you yeah. know and then like your uh your meet fees pays for you to absolutely fucking annihilate the bathroom yeah the bathroom is the word i feel so bad <laughs> i always do yeah oh well you know you get it in the end of the meet you'll see there's all kinds of crap in a bathroom and the toilets always stand up and stuff and they're out of whatever and there's chalk and baby powder and god knows what elsewhere so lots I was of inappropriate bad. things lots of inappropriate things <laughs> well unless it's a usapl meet <laughs> even then <laughs> let's not be naive yeah that's true let's that's, not be naive some of them. yeah some of them <laughs> Any suggestions on low bar with shoulder issues on my right side? Should I do SSB till I get it resolved? Um, first, that would be the absolute thing I'd, I probably would suggest doing. Like if mm -hmm. low bar is jacking at your shoulder, I would probably avoid low bar. 
Um, the SSB is definitely going to help you around that where you can still get a training effect. So with high bar, so with front squat, mm -hmm. so with cambered bar. That's why I do love specialty bars because there are ways to minimize deterioration. Low bar is probably the most detrimental to the lifter. It, it jacks up so many people's shoulders and elbows and training it consistently year round all the time um, is a little bit tough on the body. So I do, I do love specialty bars for that reason. But I would try and figure out what the issue is being caused by. Is it the low bar itself or do you have an actual injury within the shoulder that needs to be strengthened? That's where I would prioritize, identifying the why. Because just avoiding low bar isn't necessarily gonna fix the issue, it's just, it's just eliminating the trigger. So you're eliminating the trigger that's causing this pain, but until you identify what's causing the pain, you don't know exactly what that is. Yeah, and I, I know that a lot of people don't want to not, they they always want a low bar because it's usually their they strongest the most, variation. Right. Um, so most people don't want to high bar or anything, but I can, I mean, I've seen it over and over again with clients that training high bar consistently mm -hmm. does generally increase your low bar. Your low bar. So even though it's a little bit less weight and you have to kind of like take an ego knock to do like a high bar or an SSB or a sort of a specialty bar, it is overall building that low bar position when you get back to it without you feeling like absolute trash all the time. And there's reasons for that. The prime mover is still the quads. Lower bar, oh, I'm sorry, high bar usually leads to a longer range of motion. So you're getting stronger through a longer yep. range of motion. You're getting stronger in weaker positions and that carries over. And then you're gonna have a little bit more of an upright torso in a high bar position. Lots so, more emphasis on stacking that torso and keeping correct. your midline stable. Yeah, exactly. So you're building positions, you're building the prime mover and you're eliminating the wear and tear. So when you do go back to low bar, you're fresher and your quads have gotten stronger and your stacking has gotten better and so forth. So generally you will find that, that people who high bar more often tend to improve their low bar. It's the same theory as, you know, getting stronger in sleeves to get your wraps squat up because if you're always lifting in wraps, you're training to that effect. You're never actually giving yourself a different stimulus. So if you can bring your sleeve squat up, your wrap squat's gonna go up because the wraps are gonna help you the same amount anyways. Yeah, the extra overload with the wraps all the time yeah. is not good for it. That's just the hardest thing is you probably lift less weight high bar. So if you can get to a point where you can lift more weight high bar, uh, Charlie's a great example of that. We live with high bar and SSB oftentimes because low bar starts to jack him up and he can't bench. So, and he's, he's getting close to pushing for that 2000 total at 198. Um, he just squatted 700. We can't remember if it was 700, 700 or 705. 705. Yeah. And like his entire off-season work was all high bar. Mm -hmm. So it shows you how much you transfer over. So he put the transform bar on the low bar setting and smoked 705 or 700, whatever it was, with room to spare. Um, his best rep squat coming back to last year, October, was 738. So mm -hmm. now we're looking at a range where he might be pushing to the high sevens where his rep squat coming up at surge in October. Uh, theoretically, hypothetically, he might even be looking at eight. You know, it just depends on what kind of day he has, but the potential's there. But it's been solidly built with high bar not beating up his shoulder. Yep. Um, another question we have here is, what are your thoughts on using a relative intensity chart when trying to judge RPE? I'll let uh, you start with that one. She, she uses a lot more RPE and RIR than I do. I do put it in there for top sets, but she lives in, in RIR mostly. Yeah, for, major for majority of them, or at least a good amount of people that I know that can trust them. I think the relative intensity is fine. Um, a lot of people when they're starting out, like if you have a, a newer lifter who is very beginner, who like doesn't even know what their maxes are, doesn't understand what RP or RR is, I generally don't try to explain that to them. I generally will say, okay, I want you to give me a set of five that's really, really hard. And so that's like relative intensity, right? So I give them like a really, really hard set, like an aggressive set, whatever adjectives you want to use. So I think that using relative intensities for RPE is fine. What I don't think is fine is to rate an RPE or an RIR off of a percentage because that is literally quite the opposite yeah. of what it's supposed to be. Um, I've seen charts where they're like, oh, 70 to 80% is an RPE seven. And I'm like, that's not entirely true for everyone. And it's also supposed to be 
your rate of perceived exertion, not your actual literal percentage exertion. Like that may not be the same for everyone. Some people can rep out 80% for 11 reps. um, Are they endurance-based? Are they power-based? And there's a lot of margin for error, especially, I want to say this, on the untested side. Yeah. Because when you're getting ready for a meet and you're on performance-enhancing things, your 70% is going to be very different yes. versus your off-season when you're off everything, what your actual 70% is. Because there's usually somewhere between a 7.5% and 10% difference. So if you're relating it to a, a percentage chart and you're not on those things, it could be very, very, very off. And you're way overshooting your RPE. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. So uh-huh. there's a lot of room for error as far as matching it with an actual percentage. That takes away the point of the RPE in the first place. Yeah, I know that some people, they're like, well, when I'm trying to figure out my RPE, that's what I use as a percentage. And I'm like, well, the way that you figure out your RPE is kind of by testing those limits instead of just assuming that it's a percentage based sort of thing. So I'm fine with like a relative intensity chart. I think that that will work, but I would never want anyone to correlate their RPE eight to an 80% because that's not going to be the same thing. And 80%, um, I'm, you know, potentially looking for upwards of five reps, depending on the person. Whereas an RPE eight, that's only going to be one to two, like one and a half to two reps left in the tank essentially. So those may be very, very different. Um, so I think if you're basing your RPE off of a percentage, you're doing it very wrong. And also if you're asking everyone else to um, your judge RPE. your RPE, <laughs> yeah, that's like... That's that drives me crazy. What do you think my RPE is? It doesn't matter know. what they fucking think your RPE what is. It matters you what think? you think your RPE is. Yeah, so you can, I mean, like, like Trevor's a speed guy, you know, mm-hmm. so if, especially with squats, like if he is supposed to be hitting an RPE 8 someone else who doesn't train with him often will see it and be like, dude, that's an RP5. And I'll be like, no, that's an RP8. That's my eight. <laughs> yeah. So it's, that's my eight. unless you train with that person every single day and you know exactly what type of lifter they are, um, you probably are not going to be good at guessing their RP. Yeah. I'm not a grinder. I don't grind reps very well. No, not at all. If I'm grinding, it's like a 10. So it's like an 11. I mean, it should be, point. but yeah, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not a good, I'm not great at grinding reps. I'm, I'm great at being fast. So if you're fast for last, right? If you're first for last. It doesn't even make sense. You'd be fifth, sixth, hell, even eleventh. You're a rotten egg a lot. <laughs> Last one up the stairs is a rotten egg, and it's always me. <laughs> um, someone has a, a good question here. Uh, Frankie Fresh, dude, I don't want to answer that. That's not my drama. That's their problem. <laughs> yeah, just to be clear from the podcast, they know what you're saying. You go, why do people care about the Joe Sullivan and, and Derek this old beef going on? That's not my drama. That's their drama, and that's between them, and that's what the internet needs to understand. That that's something between them, so let it stay between them. That's, that's a not them problem. That's a that's them not problem, problem, not us problem. Um, I, I saw it. It was sent to me by multiple people. It's not something I want to be involved in. I have enough mm-hmm. things in my life that I have to worry about. I don't have to worry about that. I think I think they're both cool. You know, They have their own different beliefs, and that's fine. We are all entitled to have our own different beliefs. All right. So, Barbell Viking Kyle... Thoughts on making the call on going from flats to a heel, leverages for a more narrow stance. I assume he means lifter there. Um, Kyle, you don't squat narrow. <laughs> you squat wide. Uh, but he might be asking for a lifter that he has that he works with because he does coach, so that's a possibility. Um, which one's going to allow you to lift the most weight to the competition standard? Yep. It's less about your leverages and more about what is your ability to move the most weight. Mm-hmm. People forget that. I make jokes about like my deadlifts not looking pretty in that day because I like them to look pretty. And I always joke in the gym with people, like, make them look pretty. Um, no pressure, but make them look pretty. You usually tell me perfect. Yeah. Like, make it perfect. Make it perfect. No pressure. No pressure. <laughs> if you're in a meet, it doesn't matter what your fucking lifts look like. Mm-hmm. It matters what you lifted. Did you lift more weight or did you not lift more weight? When it comes to heels versus flats, it is going to be personal preference. There are some people who have a better looking squat in heels but can lift 20 more pounds in flats. I'm going to put them in flats yep. 
Because at the end of the day, when it comes to powerlifting, it's about your total, not about how, how well you made the lift look. You can manage fatigue to avoid the injury aspect from there. Um, if it's the opposite of that, like if they're lifting 20 more in heels and they're like, I flats just feel better, then let them train flats year round. But when it comes time to peak for the meat, put them in the heels because they're going to lift more weights in the meal, in the heels. If anything, they're going to get a different stimulus. Uh, EMG studies show it's like the same quad activation regardless, mm -hmm. but everyone who switches from like heels to flats or flats to heels will say the squat feels different. When I'm in flats, I can feel my glutes and hamstrings so much more coming out of the hole than when I'm in heels. When I'm in heels, it feels like all quad. Yeah. And if I'm doing an anterior loaded squat, like a front squat, it doesn't matter. But if I'm doing like a back squat of any kind, I can definitely feel the difference in how much hip activation I'm able to utilize under the bar. But the leverages can differ. If someone's very, very long legged or tall, it might shrink their squat a little bit to be in heels. But if they're not showing a stronger squat in heels, there's no point putting it in there just because the squat looks better. And that's what people think about, oh, that looks better. Um, I had a lifter, Tom, who did that. Like he can go ass to ankles in flats and his heel squat was actually a shorter range of motion, even though he was getting the depth because of the way it traveled his knees forward, but he felt stronger in flats. So I'm like, let's just be in flats. You know, mm -hmm. the, the heel squat looked better as far as looseness control, but he was squatting 30 to 40 more pounds in flats. I'm like, well, we're going to stick with flats. Yeah. But every now and again, I'll tell him just for a variation, put the heels on just for a different stimulus. Um, it really is subjective more so than it is based off of leverages. If someone's struggling to hit depth in flats, you want to figure out, is it an ankle mobility issue? Probably not. Is it more of a bracing issue? Probably so. Mm -hmm. And you want to prioritize teaching them how to brace more than putting on a crutch of, a, okay, this will make you appear like you're lower if you're in the heels because they still have that same bracing issue. Yeah. And that's truly what's holding back the squat is the bracing issue, not the ankle mobility issue. Honestly, I feel like majority of lifters that I work with that use lifters, they have a harder time generating force at the feet in those lifters. Um, I feel like I see this all the time where there's like, they're complacent with their feet, right? They're not rooting at all. They're not creating any force and they're just like letting their ankles collapse. They're not sturdy. They're not stable. Um, and I don't know if that's just because the lifters feel so thick that they feel like they don't kind of have to do anything. You know, they just feel stable in that right. lifter itself or what, but I generally see that often where like they're losing a lot of force at the bottom with wearing lifters. That could just be my experience with like lifters that I work with, but that just seems to be commonplace. For Some of them end up bottoming out in the yeah. heel. Yeah. yeah, and then like they, they have foot collapse and they have no they have no uh, drive out of the hole, no aggressiveness. So I don't know. I think that that's, that's something that kind of like you mentioned, whichever one they're stronger in, I think it's going to be better. That's ultimately the name of the game. Wherever you're strongest is where you should go. All right. So of course, Wyatt is still thinking about me as he should be. He should be in fear. But there's a question here. Watch the video you did a while. Oh, it's shrink up. Right, sorry. Watch the video you did a while back on cueing terminal knee extension for sumo deadlifts rather than over tucking. I have issues with locking my knees before my hips. Any tips for that? And then he correct himself underneath, not being able to lock my knees before my hips. That is a position issue. Um, the chances are you are tucking at the start, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with tucking. So cues aren't magical. People are always looking for one magical cue. Your positions are going to differ. Some people will lock their sumo deadlifts knees than hips. Some people will lock hips than knees. Some people will lock simultaneously. It's never going to be the same for each individual. You have to identify where your weakest link is and then fix it from there. So if you are locking your hips in before your knees in, then you probably have weak quads and need to focus on strengthening the quads within that position. So something that might work very, very well for you to understand that would be something like priming a, a seated sumo deadlift to where you can work on the terminal knee extension first and then bring in the hips in second if you're doing it. Granted, you're not gonna be able to use the same load, so it's a teaching position. Um, pause deadlifts 
and then you're focusing on just driving through the quads to finish for after the pause and so forth, or hover deadlifts where you're not actually touching the floor, where you're keeping tension entirely constant on the tension, quads, yeah. constant tension in the quads mm -hmm. so you can learn to feel them and then just driving up from the quads. Everyone's going to be unique from based off their individual problem. Uh, so just because they did a video on one aspect doesn't mean everybody has that problem. It just it, It's just speaking to the people who have that particular problem. So I would maybe even prime before you deadlift terminal knee extensions, band terminal knee extensions from your sumo position so you can feel that quad drive in there. So if your quads are locking late, work on ways to lock them first. And then because you're if you're starting already tucked and your hips are already in, they're going to go in regardless. Yes. So you have to focus on that quad drive, that push into the floor more so. And that's what I would probably focus on. Yeah, that's what I was thinking with like the, the tucked pelvis, like because that's I start very posteriorly tucked. Mm -hmm. And like that's something that I don't really have to, I don't have to necessarily focus so much on trying to bring my hips through at the top. I just have to focus on quad snapping into the, um, into the lockout and like the hover deadlifts and pause deadlifts I think are really helpful for me in that situation, right. like with the posterior tilt and everything. So I would hundred percent agree with that. Good job. <laughs> Thank you. You answered very well. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. <laughs> That's all I ever seek is your approval. <laughs> well, you got it. About time. You got it this time. Took a little while. <laughs> all right. Yeah. So, you know, regardless of the lift, identify the slowest component there and that's what you need to strengthen. That's going to apply to bench. That's going to apply to squat. That's going to apply to deadlift. If for some reason you are fast off the chest and you're missing a lockout, then either you're losing stability in the bench or your triceps are weak. Mm -hmm. If for some reason you are able to lock anything out, but you're weak at the bottom, then your pecs are weak and so forth. So you want to identify the issue and work on building that. And it's going to be a very individual thing based off the issue you see. And that's one of the reasons why people do work with a coach because the coach can usually see, identify the issue and plug in the corrective or the, the the right cue for them or make them aware of it so they can focus on it and so forth. It's not that we're doing some kind of magical programming or magical theories. We're identifying areas of need and hyper-focus on areas of need. Yep. And some people just don't like to do that work. That's fine. Yeah, some people definitely <laughs> don't want to hear what I have to tell them. But I'm like, okay, well, this is weak. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear it. Or like, this is hard. Like, that's because it's your weakness. It's also supposed to be. It's supposed to be hard. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I would say I have more of an issue getting into the wedge because of having long legs. I'm, uh, I'm going to say that's bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> Most of the best sumo deadlifters have long legs. That's why they pull sumo because they can start with a really high hip. Mm -hmm. that, that information you're telling me means you have a poor starting position. It means you're probably kyphotic and thoracically rounded. And that's what's driving your hips in because you're running out of space and you're never getting thoracic extension. So if, um, we just saw this yesterday with, with Alessandro when she was lifting. She starts kyphotic, which is great. It helps her off the floor. But if she doesn't establish thoracic extension, she gets pulled forward and she can't lock it out. So chances are you have a similar issue um, because you're using long legs as an excuse. To get to the bar, you're going kyphotic and you're never getting thoracic extension and external rotation of the shoulders. So you end up in a poor position and you have poor leverage. And because you're being pulled forward, you can't lock the quads. So chances are it's not so much of cueing the knees to finish first. You have a starting position. Mm -hmm. yeah, starting position issue, I should say. I don't like the long limbs uh, excuses. Yeah, I, have, I, like, I have really long Kaylor. legs. Kaylor is <laughs> probably the best example of a long limb sumo deadlifter who's pulling mid nines, you know? Long limb, and he's not a big dude. It's, he's lanky. Um, that's an advantage. Being long limbed is an absolute advantage for sumo. You should be pulling more, not less, but it's, it's a starting position issue. Yep. Yeah. Get better lats. Get, get, get better lats. Get better thoracic extension. Learn how to use your lower trapezius, your trap three, and drop them into your pits to your pockets. Squeeze an orange and make your Garrett. Garrett Sosa had that great cue of make your chest move. Oh, That's yeah, a that great a cue. One. So, you know, Riley always says make sure someone can read your shirt. But if you don't make your chest move, then you're not getting thoracic extension. You're going to have a hard time locking out that deadlift, whether it's sumo or conventional. Yeah. All right. Done. That's it. I think that's everything. Done. She probably has to pee.
Kind of. So that's episode 20. Uh, more is not better. Better is better. I appreciate all of you who hopped on the live. Make sure you share it. I will post this to my Instagram. You guys can watch it entirely there. It gets dropped on every podcast platform on Monday. Once again, this is the lovely Riley Presnell. Hi. This is Bob's big boy. And this is me saying <laughs> goodbye. <laughs>